From The Advocate magazine, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Fran Tirado. Fran's a writer, an editor, he's one of the co-hosts of the podcast Food for Thought, and we have a really interesting discussion about growing up in a super religious family, how coming out forced him to question and reckon with all of the beliefs he had about life, how that forced him to deal with what he calls this big God-shaped hole in his body. So we talk about that, as well as pushing the envelope of his masculinity, and then we also talk about love and sex. So that is coming up. Now, if you enjoyed the conversation and think, wow, they'd be so fun to see live, well, Fran and I are doing a live show in New Orleans for Southern Decadence. That is their big pride festival. We're doing another big queer pod fest on September 1st. That's the Saturday at the Ace Hotel. There's a link in the show notes. And if you're going to be in New Orleans, I hope you can make it. All right, let's get to the interview. Without further ado, here's Fran. Let's begin with your gender. Where else do we begin? I don't know, actually. Truly, there are no other places. <laughs> yeah, and I want to do that because I think there is a lacking of historical gender norms that is encompassed in your masculinity. And I think we demand trans and non-binary people for them to talk about their gender and gender in general a lot. And yet it's something that all of us have a relationship to. And so for you, a queer cisgender man... Can you talk about how you experience your own gender? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, gender has been a conversation that's like bubbled up to the top of my brain more and more in like the last few years. And I think that's because I've just always been very comfortable in my pronouns of he, him, and always been very comfortable in my masculine identity and never questioned, questioned it. And like gayness has been something that's been so dear to me uh, and also to like my career at Hello Mister. That, like, I've never thought outside, I had not thought outside the box of gayness um, up until a few years ago. So I think as we step, as, like, we culturally, like, step more into queerness or step more into, like, different kinds of, like, gender expression, my experience with my gender is that, like, I, as, even though I, like, identify as a cisgender man, I am so happy to like push the envelope of like what I expect from my femininity or my masculinity like personality wise I actually I can exude especially in a work environment exude a lot of masculine energy and a lot of machismo that I think that comes from my upbringing or just like how I was raised um but in terms of like aesthetic expression like I'm currently wearing a black maxi dress and like I I as of last year, like I will never not have manicured nails now because that's like a ritual that has become really dear to me. And I also like, I grew a mustache two or three years ago and that was kind of a weird um, inverted fuck you to my gender because I've always been very comfortable in femininity and like being super faggy and being super femme, I guess. And then I was like this mustache, which my dad also has, I've always been like averted to like displays of masculine identity or like masculine aesthetic and I grew this mustache mustache to kind of challenge my identity or challenge my personality because I to me my mustache feels incongruous to like my very whiny girly kind of femme I've never heard anyone say that before that they grew mustache usually they grow mustaches because they like it or like their partner likes it and but you're saying you did it for the gender fuck yeah 
I think it I think it fucks with people's perceptions of me too because I think that if you just saw a photograph of me like my you know my Instagram profile or whatever you would kind of assume who I am and then you would and then once you like see me exhibit in a space and you see like my limp wrists and kind of my wonky mannerisms and the way I my body moves like a skinny little seventh grader and like I have a whiny voice I think it would kind of subvert whatever they expected from my gender expression how do you know I guess the follow-up question to that is how do you see your gender being experienced by other people Mm. I think that people go will go at and I'm very lucky because I live in New York and I live in a very privileged space and I live in a, a lot of times um I live in a privileged body that just um, people are nice to. Um, But like people go out of their way to compliment my nails at a cash register. Like men, like what people who I think are like, I would look at them and assume they were straight. They will go out of their way to compliment my nails in a kind of performance of okayness in a weird way. To to perform to you, to let you know. Yeah. They're like, you're a boy with nails. That's cool is kind of like the undercurrent of like what they're saying to me, which is honestly a kind of beautiful, but also a little weird because I'm like, Ooh, that's like that. This is the impression I'm giving is that I'm, I'm this like faggy femme boy that like is coming to get a coffee at your coffee shop or something like that. And the barista says, Oh my God, I love your nails. I, I, I can't help but feel like the conversation inside their head is like, Oh my God, they're gay oh, they're deprivileged or marginalized. Oh, I better like reaffirm them in their identity so that they feel better about themselves or something like that. That's fascinating. I think about the study that happened in the UK where they said that about three quarters of gay men have been turned off by seeing femininity in other people. Yeah. And I cannot help but think that that goes to our ingrained sexism. Yeah. Right, because we're taught to be manly men and that is what it means to be a man. So of course then we would be attracted to that. Right. And it kind of scares me. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like a a feminine shame and a deeply rooted kind of odorless gas of misogyny that's in every single way that we interact with this world. And I think a lot of that starts with the ways that like men in our community, like gay men will not feel comfortable enough getting a manicure. It's so wild to me how we are so deeply cultured to hate women that we can't even have feminine qualities right but i also think about how feminine qualities like you said your example of like the boardroom or meeting you butch it up yeah and i do the exact same thing too yeah you know if i like need something or i want to exhibit authority um my voice drops and i stand straighter and i look you in the eye and i let you know that you cannot fuck with me and that kind of kills me because the reverse of that indicates that femininity and queerness is weakness. Yeah. And I also like, I, I wear all black primarily in in a kind of a step toward that as well. It's not necessarily like gender expression. It is kind of like a neutralizer, you know, like the people don't, people can't assume too many things about me because I'm in this very neutral outfit. So I like present a kind of power in that. But I also like the other thing that I like about getting manicures now is like, even if I'm like full, like business casual, I still have this kind of wink of faggotry that um, can also be used as like a, it can be a power tactic. Like I feel, I think that like, you know, men feel threatened by anything that isn't them. And I, a lot of times I feel like in certain spaces, like a red shellac manicure will kind of demasculate people or, or kind of um, disarm people in a very in very small ways. And that almost gives you an upper hand in a backwards way. Yeah. Do you take off the red shellac when you go home to see your family? 
Oh, n- no, I don't. I recently had, um, yeah, my family came and visited me in New York, actually. And uh, I kept the manicure on the whole time. They didn't say anything about it. Um, but I think that they're, it's definitely something that they notice. My parents have, I've been out to my parents for eight years now, eight or nine years. And they've come a long way in accepting me as a gay person. So I think they've gotten enough wear and tear on like the fact that I'm literally a full-time homosexual and like I'm professionally queer for a living um, that they're used to like me doing crazy things like quote unquote crazy things like I'm getting a manicure. Sometimes I wonder if I work in queer media just to force my parents to accept me because they have to talk about my like accomplishments. Oh my God. Do they, do they talk about your accomplishments and like, they do now, but they, it used to be like, if you want to be gay, that's okay. But I don't think you should tell anybody ever. Yeah. And because they didn't want me to treat it differently, which like comes from a good place. All that also reveals their own bias. Yeah. But I think like when I'm doing a podcast about queerness and it's in the New York times, they're too proud of me and they want to tell their friends. Of course. And when their friends say, what's it about? Then they have to tell them, you know, exactly. Like, well, my straight son is documenting queer history. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they will not say that. No, 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 they wouldn't. (laughs) They wouldn't at all. Yeah. Yeah. My parents have come up. I mean, they definitely, um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. Um, my parents are from sub, my parents are from different parts of the country, but um, I grew up in the Midwest in suburban Illinois, and uh, I couldn't have grown up in a straighter, whiter, more conservative neighborhood. So um, part of like my uh, part of what happens when you my parents are you know deeply fundamentalist evangelical Christians, and um, part of what happens when you have such a um, bigoted mindset is God gives you a gay son and then you have to reckon with that and I think that my coming out um, forced where they like you know would previously vote Republican and previously have very um, conservative views having a gay son kind of forced them to reckon with their not just whether or not they were okay with gayness or queerness but their entire system of beliefs Um, because they'd only know one thing their whole life and similarly like before I came out I was I went to church three times a week. Really? I went to Jesus camp seven years in a row. I wanted to be a youth pastor when I grew up. Like I, I, I was, I was the Jesus freak and I, I, uh, and I grew up also in a cultural vacuum. So like, I didn't, I didn't have any concept of like, uh, outside kind of secular elements of culture, which are so much. So my livelihood now, but like, I like just found out a little bit ago that like, What's her face is a was a Spice Girl, uh, Victoria Becca. She was a Spice Girl. I had no idea. I literally had no idea because it was like, that closed off. Yeah, I was. I just like my, I was so protected from like mainstream culture. I I also I like just saw Clueless for the first time last year. That's fascinating. So in that small bubble, was there even room to question your sexuality? No, because it wasn't in a quote unquote option, right? No, it wasn't an option. Further back to what I was saying, like in the same way, my parents had to like reckon with their whole system of beliefs. My own queerness forced me to look at everything that I was doing. And I was like, wait, does God exist? Like, that was kind of like, like, like Mike, it wasn't like, does God, it wasn't, does God exist? The question first. And then I come out as gay. It was, I come out as gay. And then it just kind of like knocks everything off of the mantle. And then I had to like, think about everything else that I believed and kind of pick it apart. What is your answer to that? My answer is if she exists, then she exists through you as you as people. So I, I believe, I would believe in God. I don't think I believe in God. And if I do believe in God, I believe in her to kind of like 
live as a manifest live as your manifestations and your own power is god you know your your ability to like move through this world is god does that make sense yeah it does i have a a really weird my my relationship to spirituality and um christianity has like completely subverted anything because when i first came out i just like i hated christians and i hated god and i hated my church and and for a, a whole handful of reasons um because like my coming out was really hard because of the church it wasn't until like years later that I was like, oh, they're not all terrible. And even though this like str- construction of beliefs is the thing that like ruined my childhood um, and ruined like my sense of my current sense of self, like I have a weird sense of shame or, or, or insecurities or what have you all because of the church or all because of like my Christian upbringing, um, that there are reasons why people believe this and there are reasons why it still creates good in the world, even though it also creates a lot of bad. Um, and that's also because, you know, my family's Christian. So, and I know they're good people. Um, so I have to kind of, yeah, rethink it and think about it in a nuanced way, I guess. And, and the way that your entire belief system was thrown off the mantle, uh-huh. <laughs> to combine metaphors, <laughs> uh, it sounds like then your parents had the same thing happen? Yeah, much slower. Um, when I first came out, my parents were like, well, we love you, but we don't accept this. And um, we don't really like, we don't really understand it. And, um, my, I, you know, they tried to check me into conversion therapy. I had a lot of meetings with like our pastors and our youth programs and like a lot of church family reaching out to me and having private conversations with me. It was like a cataclysm. It sounds exhausting. It was really, it was really, really bad. Um, sorry, that is such a public coming out compared to mine where my parents said it's okay, but don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone. Your parents were like, we're not accepting and everyone listen up. And they consult the pastor, they consult the assistant pastor, they call consult all their church family, like phone calls. Like I remember like, like picking up the other like line of our landlines back when we had landlines and like listening in on like an hour and a half of a conversation my mom was having with like one of our like church consultants or whatever about like me coming out and like how she was having a really hard time with it and like crying on the phone and I listened to the whole thing and like that there like you can't like unhear those things and where the my coming out and the way my parents treated it has kind of like changed my relationship to them forever I do know also that like three or four years later you know they were hosting like barbecues for their church family at my house in Illinois incentivizing people to have conversations about the incorporation of LGBT people in the church so that like everyone would come around they'd sit they'd have Italian beef and they would be like okay so how do we make this an inclusive space that's an amazing turnaround. It's a huge turnaround. And now my parents are like, you know, posting anti-Trump stuff and on um, Facebook and they voted for Obama during his term, which is like, sounds stupid, but it was like a really big deal for them. And I, I think that there, there, there is kind of a weird, um, there's a weird turnaround within your belief systems when it hap- when things happen to people you love. Um, and I think that, you know, part of fundamentalist Christianity is that you it's it's so strict that you have there's very little wiggle room in like what you're supposed to believe and i think that they were kind of figuring out that like true beauty found in religion or spirituality is making your doing it on your own terms and like doing what works for you because it's impossible to follow all the rules um but yeah they've come a long way that sounds very queer too i know right it's impossible to follow the rules yeah it really is and then we also know that like the rules don't exist yeah they really don't there's no right or wrong way to be queer and there's no right or wrong way to be well unless you're as so long as you're not hurting anyone yeah while we're talking about spirituality yeah, stuff yeah. you also are big into astrology <laughs> and i know tarot cards how did you find that um 
I think I found, I think I found both tarot and astrology sometime a little bit before the election. What I found is that like, you know, people don't care about astrology. People, people care about themselves and people care about like seeing themselves in the orientation of the stars or planets. And I kind of, there was something really calming about reading my horoscope and seeing myself reflected or feeling like things were going to be okay or gaining some kind of sense of control just from reading up on astrology. So I think I, I kind of started to subscribe to it as a means to find positive um, reinforcement that things are going to be okay and I wasn't going to die tomorrow. Yeah. You know, like, I think that that was like one thing. And when we talk about astrology and tarot and all these things, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they are a means for self-reflection. They're not a means of telling you like prescriptive future, right? Well, everyone's relationship to it will be different. Oh. Like some people do believe in like in the in elements of divination that tarot and astrology might have, or people believe in like, like it's mysticism or it's magic. But for me personally, like I think about, um, I think about tarot and astrology in the same way that I think about like my daily vitamins. Like I have read a lot of articles that say that like what me spending $130 on like my monthly supply of vitamins or whatever might just be expensive urine. But I take them in the morning and I feel really good about myself. And those vitamins help me manifest certain goal sets and then imagine that my body is getting better. So my relationship to astrology and tarot is that it doesn't matter if the thing, it doesn't matter if it's like prophesizing my future. It is, it is showing me a version of what I could be and then helping me manifest that thing through my goals. That makes sense. I also love the vitamin analogy analogy because the vitamin that you take is only helping your body yeah. and your tarot reading is only helping you. Yeah. It doesn't matter if like these things actually happen. Yeah. What matters is how you interpret them. And I mean, even today, like provided clarity, it's just, it's not something where it's just like, this is the future to me, or this is like going to, this is how it's all going to shake down. It's that here's a way of looking at it. And these are the things that you would need to do, or this is the step-by-step process you would need in order to get that outcome. So yeah, it, it holds me accountable to like managing my goal sets and, and manifesting my quote unquote destiny. That's valuable. Yeah. And I think that we all have different techniques to doing that. Some you do tarot, some people do journals, yeah. some people do like read every morning. Yeah. I read every morning and I also journal and I meditate. So like, I'm like seeking, I'm seeking a lot. Like <laughs> there, I have a big, like God shaped hole in my body. Probably. <laughs> I think that, you know, I, I mean, it was 90% of my life for so long. I think that, you know, after I stopped believing in God, there's probably some sort of hole there. Do you ever do tarot readings that scare you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I pulled, I pulled, um, the devil today, which is, um, not like a lot when you look at like the devil card, you kind of think that it's going to be evil, but like the kind of more in-depth reading of it is it's, it's, um, it's an addiction. It's a lie that you are beholden to someone in your life or, or an entity in your life. It has totally gaslit you and you are continually making the same mistake over and over again. And the way I read it, I was like, this is my addiction to my work. Um, this is my addiction to being busy. And yeah, that was my future card, <laughs> like my immediate future card. So definitely, it's definitely kind of a negative card. And I immediately, I was like, okay, so this is, these are things to look out for. 
And so that's a scary reading, and yet you do so many for yourself that they all mean less, right? Yeah. Whereas if I got that card, I do it once a year. Yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, I just, like, I'll pull a card a day. Um, I don't do long readings unless I, like, really need something. But I'll pull a card a day, and a lot of times I'll just, like, forget it by the next day. It's just a thing to kind of set the tone of your day and think about and meditate on, because each card is, like, uh, a scene in your life. Each card is, like, a... Uh, an event. Um, and so if you, if you think about like how that event could or could not impact you, it's just something to like meditate on. I want to move to, uh, talking about what a social person mm, you are, Yeah, because I think that you are somebody who seeks out experiences and events as well as creates them for yourself and other people. Yeah. And I bring that up because you've not always been this kind of social person, right? No, not really. I mean, believe it or not, I'm actually, I have a lot of social anxiety, um, growing up, I had no friends. I, I like, instead of like having friends, I like did origami. <laughs> oh my God. It was very unpopular. Until when? Like college, high school? Um, those first years of college were really lost on me because I, I just felt really re-isolated again. Everything that I felt at the beginning of high school and that feeling of isolation was just kind of brought up all over again four years later. Um, so I would say that I didn't I, where I had a friend group um, in college, I feel like I really haven't fallen into what feels like um, my chosen family um, until, yeah, three years after moving to New York. It took a really long time to kind of find the people that, you know, mean something to like every single day of my life. But um, it, I, where previously I was so antisocial and so um, – I would self-isolating at times. I think that moving to New York kind of like forces you to go out. Otherwise you're kind of missing out on the experience. You're missing out on work as well. I mean like networking, like so much of what I do (laughs) or rather so much of my success I can attribute to just, you know, dressing nice, being charming and showing up to parties. It's, it's so much of what your, your livelihood can be. And yet that still gives you anxiety. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm trying to medicate for it. I'm trying to like, um, have better conversations with myself before I like go out, but I'll still have a hard time showing up to places alone. And what are you afraid of not talking to somebody like not being liked or like, what is that? Um, I think a lot of my social anxiety comes from, you know, being told that I was wrong for, you know, the first 18, 20 years of my life. So I think that part of that, of my insecurity is just like entering social spaces, like just comes from that very dark sense of self that I had when I was a kid. The other kind of backbone of it is I am constantly comparing myself to others. And if someone in the room is bigger than me, I like will really shrink or shut down. Sometimes I worry I'm saying I'm going to say the wrong thing or I worry I'm going to like not ex- uh, exhibit myself in a way that is like powerful or a way that I like ca- or in the within the public image that I like want to like have for myself. But yeah, I, I wish I had more. I should just work this out with my therapist. Honestly, I mean, you are my therapist today. I mean, I bring it up because everything you said, I think 90% of the people can relate to. Yeah, that's true. Those feelings. Yeah, I think that I mean, that's something that I love about the queer community is is that the commonality that you have with people who are queer is kind of this great equalizer. And I do believe that queer people or like your kin bring out the best of your, of qualities that are in any person. So like when I, I feel like when I, I like work to create like exclusively queer spaces in New York very frequently. And every time I kind of create one, it just feels like the small talk was over 
from the minute everyone arrived. There's no small talk in those spaces. There's no networking. I feel like there's there's so much um, love and there's so little reason for people to like provide extra context for like why they're saying what they're saying. It's kind of a, a knowingness that like brings everyone down to the same level. And you're saying too, like you live in New York city, one of like the most like queer friendly cities in the country. And yet you still have to purposely create these queer only spaces. Yeah, I do. And I feel, I feel really grateful for them, but also I feel like they don't happen enough. And I feel like, especially gay men, like, especially cis gay men, I feel like we can really homogenize our friend groups and hang out with the same guy over and over and over and over again and not even realize, like, years later that we've been hanging out with, like, if you lined up every single person that you've been hanging out with for the last, you know, three months and they all kind of look the same, is that community? Is that a, a sense of kinship? Like, I'm not quite sure. Um, so part of, like, what I do what I try to do when I create spaces like this is to make them deeply intersectional and to introduce people who don't know each other um, so that we can kind of reach across difference and dehomogenize our friend groups. Um, That feels a little inauthentic, but I do find that often you have to do these little, you have to do these like kind of forcible little things in order to like get people in the door. Yeah. I also just like, I have so many people in my life that were like before you introduce me to them i had never had a trans friend before you introduce introduce me to them i never had a non-binary friend and that is unfortunate but it's also like it's it's one of the most just knowing people and loving people that are across difference from you is the thing that's going to move us forward i really believe especially i mean like i'm not an activist but that's like that is the closest thing I can get to like activism is that like incentivizing conversations across difference instead of kind of like staying in our own little bubbles is going to be what secures us and makes us stronger as a unit so that we can go out there and, and fight the good fight or whatever you want to say about it. Um, and stronger there because of it. You say you're not an activist. I think that some people would call you one. Yeah. And I think it's just like a weird debate of like every public person who is openly queer isn't an activist. Yeah. And yet they're sometimes doing activism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That is, it's definitely, I mean, there's, it's definitely a, a bit of a queer thing. Like every, it's that one of the working titles of my book of essays is You're So Brave and Other Lies. Um, because people always say you're so brave. You know, like the the reason so many queer people are on social media are being labeled activists these days is it comes from that resounding thing that we heard over and over and over again we, when we were kids or when we were coming out of the you're so brave, which to quote Alok Badmanon, um, like you're so brave is to translates to I would never. Uh, and it really, it kind of like sets you apart from it, if just because you're doing something that no one else other uh, ever would it like that's activism. Um, but to me, I, it's also like, I, you think I'm so brave for being myself. Yeah. And it's like, I just want to be myself. I didn't make this choice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't at all. And I, just by existing, I like, I, I love, studying the idea of like bravery and how like gay people immediately become heroes and queer people immediately become heroes. Um, and how that might not always be what people want, um, or what, what queer people want out of their public perception. I think that some people can like drink their own juice too, in terms of like Insta activism. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I especially, yeah, especially in Instagram activism, it's like, I, I was interviewed for the gay times, um, for this, piece that they did profiling a bunch of quote-unquote activists i said in the interview i was like i'm not an activist people call what i do activism and i'm grateful for that but 
I don't want to take up that space. I'm not interested in taking work away from people that like built this city, like people like Bambi Salcedo or people like Miss Major, like people who don't have social presences because they're doing actual work. Yeah, like people. Yeah, it's, are they not getting these gigs? Are they are they not featured in the Gay Times because they don't have a blue check mark next to their Instagram profile? Like, like Bambi Salcedo like has been spit on at Target like just for being trans and like she became an activist out of necessity for her life and the lives of her friends. That is not an experience I have. I, I live a very privileged lifestyle and I could just exist as is for the rest of my life and not fight because I have a privileged body. But I, I feel like they're what they, what comes from their brand of activism, which is like built the thing that r- Instagram activists like kind of walk on now. I don't want to, you know, take up that space or like walk onto that territory because I'm content to work on my art or work on elevating stories or like elevating the lives of other queer people so that I can stay in my lane, I guess I would say. Yeah. Is it, is it like advocacy versus activism? Yeah. Even advocacy I shy away from because advocacy means like you, the big problem with advocacy and the idea of it in general is more often than not people uh, think that advocacy means you speak on behalf of an entire group of people. And that's also something that I don't want to do. Yeah. You're talking about your work. You're very open about sex. Yes. In your I work. Yeah. I, I want to know, have you always been comfortable talking about it? And how do you feel creating content that you wouldn't want your parents to see? Oh, yeah. My, that's a really great um, question. My parents don't listen to my podcast. Um, they've never asked to. I've never acknowledged it in front of them. I think they, they know that I have a podcast, but like we don't talk about it. A year or two after I came out, I found a very beautiful vintage copy of like an, a first edition copy of The Joy of Gay Sex, um, which is a really... It's kind of like a it's a um, a watershed kind of moment in like books and like gay sex in books, and it has like these really like cheesy illustrations in it, and it's super pornographic, and it's an amazing book. Anyways, I found it, and I was like, "This is great! It feels very decorative. It feels very me." And I kept it. And I remember for some reason bringing it home from college with me, and then I left it at my parents' house like an idiot. I remember the next time I came home. I was like looking for the book that I thought I had left under my bed or in my closet or something and couldn't find it anywhere, Jeffrey. And I was like, did it go missing? Did someone? And I remember walking downstairs and sitting and like into the kitchen where my mom was and saying, hey, mom, I'm looking for some stuff that I left here from college when I was like, when I came here last. And like, I'm, I'm looking for some books. Like, did you, did you? throw away any of my books and then she says i threw away one book and which meant that she threw away my one copy of the joy of gay sex which she could not have in her house because it was like nudity and pornographic and that is a great example of how conservative of a family i grew up in my family to this day will still cover my eyes if we if there's a sex scene that will come yes. on when we watch a movie together and i think that a lot of my relationship to sex really started out in that deeply rooted sense of christian shame um how do you feel when you think about your first sexual experience ooh my first sexual experience was a lot of it was really beautiful. And I remember feeling like I could conquer anything. And I remember being like, I can't believe that this happened. I remember a sense of disbelief. 
Um, and I think a lot of men and their relationships to like their first sexual experience is like a sense of entitlement that this is like their card to collect. And I just remember walking away just like in awe of myself and what I was capable of. That's wild. Yeah. Even though it was like the least sexy experience ever, it was like so awkward. And like, there was so, there was so much fumbling. Like, I don't think we, I don't think anybody came in anybody. Like it was just like, there was, I, I, all the things that I remember about, about it physically were just like not fun. But I remember walking away, like floating and being like, I didn't know I could do this. Um, That's amazing. So my relationship to sex now is like, it's really funny because it's somewhat like, with Hello Mister, you know, I edit hundreds of stories about sex and relationships. And I can, I know, I feel like I know or hold a lot of like knowledge about queer sex and relationships because of the hours that I've clocked in it. But I actually have very little sex and very few relationships for someone who like harnesses all that knowledge. Um, so it's something that's very important to me, but simultaneously, like I don't move my life around it. Uh, does that make sense for sex or for relationships or both? Both. Like I, when I, I will never go to, I, I can't remember the last time I went to a gay bar or if I've ever gone to a gay bar being like, who am I going home with tonight? Like that's, I've never had that mentality. I'm trying to think if I have, it's why I don't have dating apps. I can't, I can't connect. I don't have grinder. I can't connect with anyone on it. And I'm really envious of people who use it to create like, really vital and beautiful relationships, even long-term relationships. Like I'm really jealous of that. I think it's an amazing tool, but I like can't get, I've downloaded it over and over and over again. And I can't cross the threshold of connecting with someone on that app. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, when we've gotten to gay bars, you and I, you've been approached and recognized by different gay men. (laughs) So in gay spaces, uh, I want to know if you feel famous, (laughs) Uh, but I also really want to know is like, how does that affect meeting guys? Like who know who you are? Oh gosh. Yeah. It doesn't matter what city I'm in. If I enter a gay space, whether it's like a bar or a drag race viewing or like something or drag show or something like that, like I will get recognized. And that is a fantastic ego boost for me who has spent the first 20 years of my life hating myself. So I'm trying to like make up for lost time by like loving myself and like finding refuge and in confidence and like having an ego. But I, it's also in terms of like dating, it kind of like, it desexualizes me a little bit. Uh, It kind of like, it kind of takes me out of any sense of like romance or like flirtatiousness that I would have with that person or with anyone else in the bar, because I immediately feel like I have to put on a facade if I have to um, inhabit that public figure self, um, then I just, it takes me out of any sense of like romance or relationships. Oh, because part of your quote unquote identity is being single. Kind of. Yeah. And also just like, this is so weird to like articulate, but if, if you, if someone recognizes you at a bar, you're immediately more powerful than them. Um, you immediately have this, like aus- the, this air austere about you that, um, means that they in some way or other want something from you. And so, um, when I started working at the magazine years ago, um, at Hello Mister, like I would go on what I thought were dates and then like three or four or five minutes into the date, they would start talking about their work or like how they're a photographer and they would love to work with me or like how they're working on a screenplay. And I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with your screenplay or whatever? Like, but people wanted something from me. Oh, and you thought you were there to get dates. I thought I was there on a date. And they like reached out informally, like Facebook messenger, like ways where it's like, it's like very unprofessional. So I was like, I'm going to assume this is a date. 
So I think that that kind of has hardened my shell toward people um, who uh, know me for my work, I guess. And therefore, I just maybe it's like a protective shell yeah. that I wear uh, to like not to just like I don't want to like disappoint myself. So I just don't even try. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Do you think that you're attractive? Oh my God, Jeffrey Masters. Um, I don't think of myself as conventionally attractive. I don't fit a porn category. Um, I don't have a body that would be labeled as sexy by the mainstream or what people consider structurally hot. I think that um, I know that (laughs) I have a pretty privilege. Um, I know that I have a very good bone structure um, in my face, Um, but I have a, I've, I've wrestled with dysmorphia my whole life um, and wrestled with self image my whole life. So I have a really, really, when I, to this day cannot get a compliment, I cannot receive one. Um, whether it's about my physical appearance or about my work, it's it's really hard for me to do. And I'm trying to get more graceful about it. But if it's something about my physical appearance, I'm like uncomfortable. And I'm like, thank you. Like, it's like, it's just, it feels like a stabbing kind of pain. It, I hate it. Um, so when do you feel, not to ask a hacky question, but when do you <laughs> feel most attractive? When do I feel most attractive? That's a really good question. I, I'm not sure. Um, because I, I mean, gay bars depress me. I'll, I'll fall into a depressive episode at a gay bar more than any other space, you know, because I just don't feel like I'm, I fit into the category of what people think is attractive. Um, I mean, for, I've been in gay bars and my friends are like, no one's looking at me. And I'm like, I don't, can't see a guy that wants to look at me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I know. It's, it's so funny. It's, um, it, I have different, I have different, I have a lot of different relationships with gay bars um, because sometimes I love them, but I probably feel most attractive when I have a partner, honestly. And that's very infrequently. Um, I think when I'm, if I'm dating someone and I, they are kind of reaffirming me over and over again, it'll probably be an unraveling of them complimenting me and me rejecting it over and over again. But I think the more we spend time with each other and the more we have sex and the more that we like, you know, make out and like, and like have a like sort of relationship i think that's when i feel my most confident i hate hearing that because you also just said that you're perpetually single <gasps> i know yeah it means that I, yeah it means that i i rarely feel attractive kind of I, that's it's i i'm like totally knocking myself down in this interview but like um yeah i am i am i haven't had a really i haven't been in a relationship in three and a half years I don't even have crushes anymore. I feel so like um, laser focused on like my work. Have you ever been in love? I've been in love possibly once, but it was my first relationship. And I think that I would, I really, I would kill to relive my first relationship. My first relationship was horrible. It was a really like kind of emotionally abusive relationship, but I, I would kill to, to re, inhabit that body and that headspace just because I want to know what that felt like. And I want, I want to, I can't remember like how I felt when I was in that space. And you know how, like when you're in relationships with someone, you become like an ex- especially with me, I'm, my Venus is in Gemini. So like I become a completely different person when I'm in love. 
So I wanted, it's kind of like though, when you break up with someone and like after like a week later, you're like, how did I even get there? It's like an unrecognizable version of myself. Um, And I think that with my first relationship specifically, I was so far away from who I am now because I was just everything that he wanted me to be um, that I just, I'm curious to know what that headspace is like. It's like being brainwashed. I don't know. You, I mean, you offhand said that you don't fit any any porn category. Yeah, <laughs> but that is like hundred percent real. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm lanky, so I'm like I'm maybe too tall to be a twink, and I have a little bit of hair, so I'm not that twinky. But I have a mustache, so I could be an otter, but I don't have enough hair to be an otter. And historically, twinks have been white men. Yeah. I, but yeah. I also mean by category wise, like w- we look at porn in order to learn about sex because we're not taught about um, queer sex. Yeah. And so we look at categories yeah. and it would make sense if I like nine categories and you don't fit in them, I don't find you attractive because it's like, well, it's not what I've seen sexually. Yeah. Because we are conditioning ourselves to feel that way. Really? Yeah. We're absolutely cultured that way. I feel so much of like what I, <laughs> what I've like set out on this earth to do is to just rid c- cis gay men of categories and like how they just they're a prison especially especially when it comes to like like your preference of sexual positions like when people say i'm a top or a bottom i i think it's great if you really find refuge in the label of bottom and that is just something that gives you great comfort and you want to be that for the rest of your life that is okay but i think most men haven't had a long enough conversation with themselves to know what they really want because it's easier to take refuge in a category or easier to take refuge in finding those categories for yourself to have sex with them and it's also like a comedic platitude that makes a great punchline and a lot of jokes so much so to that like we we make top and bottom jokes on my podcast all the time it's really funny but i it's it's unfortunate to me that so many gay men foreclose on the identity of their sexual preferences because someone told them, oh, you're a bottom, you know? And they were like, oh, yeah, aha, yeah, that's we only fit into one or another category. Or, like, maybe because, again, we're not taught about queer sex. Like, it's the first thing they did, and that's what they're now comfortable with. Yeah, exactly. And, and it all, I mean, same with gender. Like, I feel like it's such a, it's a lack of, it's such a failure of the imagination, to not imagine yourself wearing lipstick once, you know? And and yet that is the way that we've been conditioned because we go to school and we're taught to fit in and to conform. And then, and and because we're taught as a group of students, we're in a class, we're not individuals. And then we get out of the, uh, into the real world and we need to define ourselves and we need to be unique. And it's like, well, I don't actually know what I like or don't like. Right. And this is all, and that's also, you know, a function and product of capitalism, like capitalism. Like we are, Um, put into categories and we find refuge in categories because otherwise how are companies going to market blue jeans and soda to us there it it, we have to fit into demographics in order for um, brands to understand us yeah so when we like escape those demographics and we escape those labels we no longer fit into this the the system of capitalism that like rules our very being and everything that we do i left a full-time advertising job last year um, because any time spent uh, not creating stories for queer people, researching the lives of queer relationships, figuring out how to uplift and uphold the queer community to a higher standard, um, or to just like give us space in the mainstream felt like wasted time. If I wasn't doing that, it felt like wasted time. So in anything that I do, all of it has to come back to the queer community in some way. I think that's kind of what I want to do. 
but it's not a concrete thing, you know? Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> it's like your tarot card set this morning. Yeah. It's just like find refuge in the unknown and find refuge in the fact that like you're going to be balancing a lot of things. Well, thank you for doing this. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, please tell your friends. Please spread the word to people you know in person or on social media. It is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. So thank you for that. Now, I mentioned earlier, but Fran and I are doing a big queer pod fest live show in New Orleans over Labor Day weekend. Our show is September 1st at the Ace Hotel. There's info in the show notes, but let me know if you can make it. I would love to see you there. And then with the midterms coming up, I want you to know that GLAAD is here to help you amp your voice. GLAAD is making it easier than ever to access the tools you need to vote and to speak out on the issues that matter. To learn more and make sure your voice is heard, go to glad.org slash amp your voice. That's glad.org slash amp your voice. We are broadcasting from the Advocate Magazine studio in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest running LGBTQ magazine in the country. They were founded in 1967. You can also check out their other podcasts, The Advocates. Also, you can sign up for our newsletter. That's at lgbtqpodcast.com. It's a great way to stay up to date on all of our new episodes, all of our live shows, like the one in New Orleans. You can sign up for that at lgbtqpodcast.com. Special thanks to our partners at Panoply, our old home after Buzz TV, Jason McMurdy, and everyone for listening. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.